very much. Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to dip back just a few verses into chapter 15 and then finish chapter 16 today. The title of the message this morning is Sliding Downhill. There is a slippery slope to sin and its consequences. You know, there's a, um, actually some people call the slippery slope a, a logical fallacy. They'll say, well, if you, you know, you can't uh, point out, you know, if you point out you, what you accept now will have long-lasting implications down the line. Actually, there's a lot of truth in this slippery slope, and we'll see it here on display in this chapter, this idea that there is a downward slope. You slip and fall, and you will keep going. And um, slippery slopes are real. They really are. We see them in life. We see them in our culture. And small steps over time will take you further than you'd ever want to go. And um, those on the slippery slope are usually deceived in two ways. And we'll find is that people are deceived. Number one is they don't see the slippery slope until they've hit rock bottom. They say, oh, that was the slope. I see now how far I've fallen. Have you ever been to that point where you looked back at your life and you said, man, what, what, why did I get here? What happened? How is it that I'm here now? There's a little bit of denial a lot of times while they're falling. They say, oh, no, it's not a problem until they've gone too far. Secondly, Sometimes you realize how far you've fallen, and there's grief that overwhelms your heart, and you think in despair, I can't do anything about this. I've, I've gone too far. I've fallen too far from God. What we find in this passage, and we find in the Word of God as a whole, is that the grace of God is for the sinner on the slippery slope, and God's grace is so good. But we first have to admit where we are, and we have to see the reality of where we're falling. We'll see that this morning as we look at this passage. Father, we ask your grace and wisdom as we see what happens on the slippery slope of sin. Father, may we interrupt these falls that we're on, and many possibly even in this room have found themselves on the slippery slope. May they, may they repent, Lord. May you turn their heart to you and see the hope and the grace you give for someone who is falling. And so, God, give us grace even today in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 16 functions as a kind of like a, if you think of the story of 1 Kings and the divided kingdom of our sermon series, if you kind of take a step back, if you've been along with us on this journey, this is like the closing scenes to the first act, if you think of it that way. We have seen the, the, the kingdom divided in two, and there is just a downward trajectory all the way. There is this God is setting the stage here, and he's also giving us the stakes for what is possible. He is introducing us to all the players and all their roles in this story, in this drama. We see the first kings of Israel, how far they push God. And the question that came to my mind as I was studying this passage this week was, how, how far can you go before God steps in? How far can you go before God steps in? Because there has been political instability that has been predicted and has been what exactly has uh, God, God told them would happen. In fact, in, in chapter 14, we have this uh, God speaking. It says, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed shaken in the water. The instability of the nation will be clear. He will uproot Israel from the good land and he, that he gave to their fathers. He will scatter them beyond the river because, notice, they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. The, this chapter here tells a story of five kings of Israel. We're going to stay in Israel this whole time. We've been 
jumping back from Israel to Judah, you know, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Now we're going to stay in the north. And the kings of Israel. And, and really, if you go to the very end of this chapter, if you'll notice, uh, the last king we come across, if you look at uh, chapter 16, verse, verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Now, Ahab is a notoriously wicked king. And, and I, I thought to myself, how do you get the point how do you get to the point where Ahab is your king? How far do you have to fall where you have King Ahab is who is leading your kingdom? What we'll find here is there's a slippery slope that gets us there. Number one, slippery slope is marked with warnings. Let's look at this um, verse 33. I mean, it, it, before we, I, mean I, th- I think about um, warnings that we see all the time. I, I'm not a good snow skier. I will tell you that right off the bat. I'm a terrible snow skier. I grew up and, uh, and we would go to, the, we'd go to the lake, and we'd, we'd water ski. And I liked water skiing a lot growing up, and I didn't snow ski until I was a grown adult. Now, when you fall as a grown man, it's a different experience than falling as a child. You know, when you're a child and you fall, you just kind of, and you pop up, and everything's fine. When you're a grown man, you fall. It's like you hit a ton of bricks. It's like, bam! And you wonder, where is my left arm? I can't feel it anymore. It is a brutal experience. And so I, I had never learned how to ski. And then I went with the youth group. I was a youth pastor. And they said, we need to go skiing. I said, okay, I guess that's what we have to do. So we went, we went snow skiing. And I go up to this snow skiing thing. And I'm on the bunny hill. Because I'd never been skiing before. And I'm learning how to do the whole like uh, uh, snow plows, pizza thing where you like slow yourself down, don't go too fast. And, and I, I, was, uh, I was not too proud to do that because I knew that I was taking my health in my own hands at this moment. But, but um, eventually I got my courage up and I went down the blue and I went down the green and I went all the way to the top of the hill and was having a great time that day. And someone said, look at these. These are the double black diamonds. And what I said was, no, thank you. No, thank you. Gary, you were on that trip. You remember this trip. Gary Burgess is laughing because I think he started on the double black diamonds. I mean, these guys, like, these guys who ski all the time, they do that stuff no problem. Myself, I saw the warning signs and I said, you know what? I'd rather live (laughs) than, than have said I went down a black diamond. I will just have a good time on the little slopes. Here's the thing. In our life, it is the truth that downhill things, slopes like this or slippery slopes will be marked with warnings. There will be warnings, and you have to choose what you're going to do with these warnings. Let's look at this passage beginning in verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all of Israel. So we're back 1533. Sorry if I wasn't clear there. Chapter 15, verse 33. He reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel to sin. So we have Baasha coming on the throne. He is here bringing on the warning by his wickedness. Notice what identifies him here. This is a theme that, that all the significant things that Baasha did for his nation don't matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters is his relationship to God. How, how was his relationship to God? He walked in the sin of Jeroboam. He sinned, and, and, he, and he did not follow God. So look at the words of the warning beginning in chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, son of Hanai, against Baasha, and saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, you have walked in the ways of Jeroboam, have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air 
shall eat whoever dies in the fields. God had taken Baasha, a commoner, not of a royal line, and had lifted him up into the position of leadership and authority. God had made him king. And he says here, look, you're king over my people Israel. That's important. God says your king does not mean you get to do whatever you want. You are still king over my people. And, and as king over my people Israel, Baasha did not obey God. Look at his choices. He chose to walk in the ways of Jeroboam. And what that meant was he was worshiping idols that represented God. Remember the, the golden calves that were set up at Dan and Bethel that Jeroboam did? At the very first thing Jeroboam did when he divided the kingdom in half is he said, we have to have our own centers of worship, and we're going to make our worship centered on images. And these images, I believe, were images of what they believed, images of the Lord. This image of the golden calf, similar to what Aaron did uh, outside of Mount Sinai. Here they set up the golden image calves, and they are worshiping, and there's this syncretism, this combining of Canaanite tradition and worship with true worship of the Lord. And so he led the people to sin. In sinning, he led the people to sin, and he provoked God to anger. And what's the consequences? The consequences is there's no lasting kingdom. God said, I will take away your posterity. In other words, in Hebrew, it says, I will consume what comes after you. Your children will be taken away. You'll have the same consequences that Jeroboam had, and that Jeroboam was a successful king, but he could not transfer the success into a family line, a dynasty. So God directly dealt with him this way. In fact, he, he repeats the same consequences that were given to Jeroboam back in 1 Kings 14, 11. The dog shall eat whomever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. The birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. It's a very brutal way of talking, but what he's saying is this. He's saying, you will not be given a good burial. Your body will be left out. And if you're in the city, your, your body's left out, you'll be consumed by animals, dogs. If you're in the countryside and you're, and you're left out, you'll be consumed by birds. It is not, you will not be respected in your death. You'll be cast aside. You'll be abandoned. There's no state funeral for you. There's no procession. There's no fancy burial place. You will be abandoned in your death as a reason for your, your sin. These are the warnings that he gives. And what's the reason for the warning? Look at verse 5. It says, now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did is might are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested with his fathers, who was buried in Terzah, and Elah his son reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Baasha and his house. Because of all the evil, here's the point, because of all the evil he did in the sight of the Lord, and provoking him to anger with the works of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed them. I think it's interesting to me that it doesn't matter all the might that he did, verse 5, that's not for this book to talk about. All the mighty things that Baasha did, don't worry about those things, says the writer of 1 Kings. We're not concerned with all the great things he did. What we're concerned with was his relationship to God. And the fact was, as he positioned himself against the Lord, that evil led him down a very dangerous path. God took credit for his rise, but Baasha would be responsible for his own fall. I believe often that Slippery slopes are marked with warnings from the Lord. People who love you will warn you. My question is to you is, are you listening to the warnings that come around you? People come to you and say, I'm really concerned about the way you're treating so-and-so. I'm really concerned that you haven't been in church in a while. I'm really concerned about your attitude or about your anger. I'm really concerned about this or that. I'm really concerned about this part of your life. How, how do you respond when people confront you with the areas in your life that you know they're right about? Do you get defensive, or do you take it as a sign of God's mercy in your life, God showing you warnings, 
along the slippery slope. The second thing I want to show you is that the slippery slope here relishes debauchery. What you find on the slippery slope is sin. All along, not just the sin of idolatry, but sin all the way down. Look at verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel, and he reigned two years in Terzah. Now his servant, Zimri, commander of half the chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arzah, steward of his house in Terzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Notice first the sin of drunkenness. Baasha reigns in general peace, installs his son Elah on the throne. The warnings that came have not affected Baasha yet, but they will affect his children because Elah's reign is not nearly as successful or long as his father's. Like a lot of sons who grew up having everything handed to them by their fathers, Elah falls further down the slippery slope of sin, and he embraces a kind of debauchery or sin. We see this here like he had a servant named uh, Zimri, and Zimri's a commander of half of his chariots. He's a military leader. And so we have this story, the situation. So Elah is in a, someone's house named Arza. We don't know who Arza is, but it might even be that he's involved in this plot. It seems, sure seems like it from the way the story is told. And the king was drinking himself drunk, He is a leader, and he is making himself drunk. In fact, we're warned about this in books like Proverbs. Solomon hands down this wisdom here. He says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. There is a a danger here that he, he ignores and he embraces debauchery. He embraces drunkenness. And so while he's incapacitated, Zimri comes in and assassinates him, violently kills him, it says, and he becomes a usurper. So we see in verse 11, there's not only the sin of drunkenness, there's the sin of violence. Verse 11, it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on the throne, that he, Zimri, killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Zimri is a violent man. He's a violent man. As soon as he has authority, what does he do? He immediately kills all the household of the king who stood before him. And, and the, way it, the way it is told, it seems that Zimri had conspired against Baasha by gathering a coup, a group of people together, so that when he killed the king, he could move forward and activate his plan for killing all the loyalists. Even his friends are killed. You see that. Not just his family, is killed. his friends. Look at verse 12. It says, Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. This wicked behavior of killing off the king's family was in fulfillment of God's judgment. God used the wickedness of this man to fulfill his judgment against Baasha. God had warned through Jehu, but Baasha's family had not heeded the warning. The last sin we see in this debauched family is the sin of idolatry. For all the sins of Baasha, the sons of Eli's son, verse 13, by which they had sinned, but which they had made Israel to sin in provoking the Lord of anger, the Lord of Israel to anger with their idols. The word idol in this phrase is the word vanity. In fact, some of your translations might have the word vanities. Vanities just means breath. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word is used over and over again. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It has the idea, uh, the idea of breathing out and your breath dissipating. Like when a cold day, you walk outside, you see your breath and it disappears. 
He says these, these idols that they worshiped were nothing. They're just a breath. They're not even real. They're, they're vanities. In fact, Jonah talks about those who forsake their own mercies. Those who embrace vanity will forsake their own mercies. Those who for, embrace idols forsake mercy. And so here they're, they're embracing a non-existent thing. Idolatry, violence, debauchery, and drunkenness. All of this is part of this slide downhill. We move on to another slippery slope, which is the sin of destruction. Often, slippery slope turns to self-destruction. Verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terza seven days. This violent man reigns only seven days. The people were encamped at Gibbethon, which belongs to the Philistines. Now, the people had heard it Heard it said that Zimri has conspired and has killed the king, so all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So if I can just kind of walk you through what's happening here. Back in on the field, on the battlefield there in Gibbethon, so they're in what's now the Gaza Strip in this area, uh, which belongs to the, to, to the Philistines, and they, they are capturing it. They're fighting against it, and they get news back from Terza that Zimri has, has killed the king, has installed himself as king. What's amazing is all the military people are like, no, 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 we're not going to have any of this. They knew him. They knew this guy was a bad guy. They did not like him. So what they did was is they, they rallied together, and they anointed as their own king, Omri. He was a commander of the armies, another military leader, and they decided to go from where they were in Gibbethon back to Terza, and there they would install Omri as their king. So now we have a civil war on our hands. We have two competing kings. Let's take a look and see what happens next. Verse 17, and Omri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon, and they besieged Terza. So here they come to rescue Terza from this usurper, this wicked man, this violent man, but something unexpected happens. Look at verse 18. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in the sins in which he had committed to make Israel to sin. Zimri's way of dealing with this problem was complete self-destruction. You notice here, the, rather than facing his enemy, rather than dealing with a conflict, he was a coward, and he goes into the citadel and burns it down upon himself. This act of suicide often follows a culture and a people who are on the slippery slope of sin. Suicide is ultimate hopelessness, and in this situation, ultimate cowardice. It is not the answer. And we all know people who have engaged in self-destructive behavior, self-destructive habits. Every family here, mine included, has been touched by the sin of self-destruction. It's a terrible thing, and it's on the path of a slippery slope to sin. In fact, if you read the rest of verse 20, he says, Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings? We've seen just nothing but downward falling, slippery slope, until we come to this next one, which I've entitled the slippery slope which seeks self-promotion. Not only self-destruction, but self-promotion, because as soon as Zimri took his life, the people of Israel were divided again into two parts. One group wanted to follow a man named Tibni, another group followed Omri. It says in verse 21, the people of Israel divided in two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. Make him king, the half followed Omri, but the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. 
So Tibni died and Omri, Omri reigned in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years, six years he reigned in Terza. You know, Scripture gives us very little information here about exactly how this conflict went down. We can assume that there was some sort of military fight and that uh, Tibni's group fell and Omri's group reigned. That really isn't the main point here of this passage or of the text. He's just telling us there was a fight, there was a, dis- a dispute, and Omri ended up winning that. If you keep reading in verse 24, Omri, what he does next is important to us. It tells us about his character. Verse 24, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name Shemer, owner of the hill. The question is still in our minds as we read this, would this man be honorable? Would he follow the Lord? What would he do? But like all the kings around him, he would choose not to follow God. He would instead pursue his own ways. Verse 25, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, did worse than all who were before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord to anger with their idols. He, he buys this hill and he starts to build. And what I'm saying here is that I think Omri, what you find from him is his desire to make a name for himself or to build his own kingdom, to get rid of Terza. Now he wants Samaria to be his own place. So even Omri, we have very little about him. But what he did was he decided to build, he decided to promote. And all that he did, it says in verse 27, the rest of which he did, the might that he showed, they're written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Omri rested with his father, was buried in Samaria, and now Ahab finally is reigning in his place. And, and Omri is a little bit of a transition figure for us because we finally get to the point at the bottom of the hill where I say the slippery slope ends with spiritual treason. Because what Ahab engages in is the worst of the worst. First thing we're going to see is the treason of a king. Look at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. We finally get to notoriously wicked Ahab. And it comes to the point where Ahab is not just being a God, uh, worshiping God in, in, in Canaanite ways. Look at what he does in verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He did evil more than everyone. Not only that, he takes a wife and he seeks he seeks a wife, and rather than finding a wife from among the people of Israel, he goes and finds a princess wife from Sidon. Jezebel's a princess. You know her, her father's name is Ethbaal, with a name like that, Baal or Baal. You know that he's a Baal worshiper. If you were in Sunday school, you may have looked at the map. You saw that Sidon is up in Phoenicia. It's in the, on the coast there, and it's, it's the place where Baal worship was prominent. And so you have Ethbaal, his daughter Jezebel, Jezebel again, the idea of, of, of Baal worship is present. And, and, and Ahab goes and marries this pagan woman, and then he begins to worship Baal. It says at the end there of verse 31, he served Baal and worshiped him. And everything in this scripture suggests that Ahab is concerned with political alliances. He is aligning himself to people in the region who are powerful because he wants to make an impact. And he has a complete disregard for God's law. He doesn't care about God's law. 
And worse than that, verse 32, it says that then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, notice, which he did what? Which he had built in Samaria. We've come so far. Jeroboam set up golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And yes, he was worshiping. There was syncretistic worship. He was combining pagan worship with true worship of the Lord. But now we've gone so far, so far that that he is actually setting up an altar for Baal. Baal is invading the territory of the Lord. This is God's territory. And Solomon had built a temple for Jehovah. Ahab had built a temple for Baal. Look at verse 33. It says, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What a treasonous king. This seemed like this would be the bottom of the slope, but actually there's more because we have a treason from a builder. Look at verse 34. It says, in his days, so this is talking about the days of Ahab, and the culture that Ahab had created made it possible for this treason to infect the whole country. In fact, if you go back to Joshua 6, 26, we have this prophecy. Joshua charged them at that time talking about Jericho, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord, whom rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And the word of the Lord came true. Verse 34, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, with his youngest son, Segub. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So here's Bethel again, this place which is not known for being full of people who honor the Lord. It's one of the places where the idols were set up by Jeroboam. And he says he laid its foundations. Now, I want to be clear what this is talking about. There's two possible interpretations for what this means. It says he laid its foundations with Abiram, and he set up its gates with Segub. And, and that was his, his youngest son. And so what in the ancient world, there were a couple ways uh, that people actually would sacrifice their children in the building of cities. That kings or builders would take their oldest son and kill them as an offering or sacrifice to a pagan god and bury their body at the foundation of their building as a good luck charm. And then in taking their youngest son, he did something similar. At the end of the building process, the last thing that would be done was the hanging of the gates. In the hanging of the gates, their youngest son would be sacrificed and killed. Now, it's not exactly clear the way this is written, whether they actually involved in the killing of the children themselves or whether God struck these children down as a punishment, divine punishment for the wickedness that was done in reestablishing, uh, reestablishing Jericho. Either way, we find here the direct, the direct uh, rejection of God's authority. God said, don't rebuild Jericho. It should be assigned to the people of, of God's judgment. And this man said, I don't care what God says. I have a financial possibility here. I have an opportunity here of a great place, a great opportunity on a, on a travel spot. It's a, tr- it's a very important location. Let me build the city for my own benefit. Ahab's wickedness, his embrace of paganism had led other people to engage in this spiritual treason. You don't start out with a king like Ahab. You get to a king like Ahab after a long time sliding down the spiritual slope. You know, as I was thinking about this message, it's a very depressing, very sad message when you see the the downward slide. And there's one thing that every single king had at the end of his reign described here. And that is to to us and to the writer here at 1 Kings, the most important thing was how did they worship the Lord? 
After it's all said and done, they built all kinds of buildings. They bought land. They did things. They, they conquered other people. There, we actually know a lot about Omri from ancient uh, ar- archaeology. We have discovered things about Omri and other things about kings. We've, we've discovered all kinds of conquests they went on, things they did, uh, trades they engaged in, but the Bible doesn't mention that at all. Because what the Bible is concerned with, what we should be concerned with, is what is their relationship to God. In fact, Jesus says it this way, um, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses my life, his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, he loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What really matters is not how, how great you are, how much you can build, how much you can accumulate to yourself. The question is, where do you stand with God? At every king, the writer of 1 Kings says, and this is how they stood with God, and this is how they stood with God. But secondly, I want to ask you, how do they get to the point? How do you get to the point, like Israel, where you're actually worshiping Baal? How do you get to that point? God will not stand idly by while people run down a slippery slope. Never mistake God's silence for his approval. Sometimes God's mercy or God's silence is his mercy in disguise as God waits until the right time to rebuke you. I mean, if you turn like one verse over to chapter 17, verse 1, God will send Elijah the prophet to deal with Ahab. That's the next big moment of this story. But things have to get really bad until God's mercy is, it runs out and he sends his prophet to directly confront him. The last thing I want to point out is this, that God's message, God's words are sent to interrupt the slide and to give us an opportunity to repent. If you will take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 15, I want to show you one passage of Scripture as we close things out. Luke chapter 15. This is the hope we have when we see the, the, the slide of sin. Familiar text for many of you, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus is telling a story here. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Here we see another slippery slope in the New Testament, this story Jesus tells of the prodigal son. A one who leaves his father says, you're as good as dead to me, dad. Give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you die. The father gives him his inheritance, and he goes, and he spends it all on prostitutes, gambling, prodigal living. After a short while experiencing the joy and pleasures of his prodigal living, he finds himself without a thing. He has gone downhill so far that the story tells us that he enslaves himself. He joins himself to someone of that city. He puts himself in the employment of someone else just to live. And while he's in the field, 
He's feeding pigs. As a Jewish person, this is the most, this is as low as you can get. Pigs were unclean animals. And there he's feeding pigs and he's feeding the pig troughs and he's feeding them pods, which is like crushed up wheat. It's like hardly worth anything. And he's feeding them slop. And he looks at the slop and it says he would gladly have filled his stomach with the paws that the swine ate. He has gone all the way to the bottom of the hill. And here's the hope. Here's why I tell you the story. Jesus does not leave us at the bottom of the slippery slope of sin. Because I want you to notice what happens. There is one thing required. The next verse, verse 17, when he came to himself. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. How would the father react to a son coming back who had cursed his face, who had said, your good is dead to me, who had run away and spent all his money, who had fallen to the bottom of the pit? The son is expecting to be treated like a slave. And he says, let me be treated like a slave. That's far better than being treated like a slave here in the, in the far country where I am with pigs and I'm gladly filling my stomach. At least I'll have some bread to eat there. I don't expect anything except him to treat me like a servant. And when he arose, verse 20, and came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it lest we eat or let us eat and be merry for this is my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. This is God's attitude towards people who've fallen to the bottom of the slope of sin. God loves you and desires for you to come to your senses. I beg of you, those of you who say, it's gone too far. I, I, am, uh, I have gone too far. I've done too much wickedness. God's mercy is new every morning, and God is waiting for you to come to Him, to wake up, get up, get off your, get up and go to Him. Get up and go to your Father. He says, he says he is waiting. Not only is he waiting, notice the picture Jesus describes of the father who is looking for his son to come. And when the son is coming, the father runs to him and embraces him. This is God's attitude towards those who repent of their sin. Friend, I encourage you to come back to Christ. If you have fallen, you say, I, I, I know the Lord, but man, I'm so far down this hill. I need grace. You do need grace. You need God's grace. And he lovingly invites you to come back. I don't want you to leave the story with sadness in your heart. I want you to leave this story with the hope that God forgives people who fall. God forgives those who go down the slippery slope of sin. And so today, don't lose hope. Heed the warning signs. Yes, don't go down that slippery slope. It will keep going. It will take you further than you want to go, make you pay more than you ever expected. Yes, it will take you far away, but don't ever think that you've gone too far for God to forgive you because He loves you and He wants to forgive you. For those of you who do not yet know Christ as your Savior, you may say, well, you don't understand, Pastor. God can never forgive me. I have sinned way too much. God doesn't forgive people like me. God forgives people exactly like you. God forgives sinners. 
those who come to Christ and ask Him to forgive them, those who come to Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, can experience the grace and forgiveness of God and have eternal life guaranteed in heaven according to the Word of God. That is the promise we have in His Word. Would you come to Him and have confidence that you have a home in heaven? You don't have to wonder. You can know that you've been forgiven and accepted into His family. Friends, where are you on the slippery slope? Do you see it in front of you? Are you going to avoid it? Do you find yourself on the way down and saying, I need to stop now. God, forgive me. Or have you already hit rock bottom and you look up and you say, what has happened? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wherever you are, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is abundant. Lord, we pray that this morning you'd work in our hearts. Help us to see where we are. Lord, we so often fail, and it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to think about these kings and how, how much they fell and, and see how far they went and think, oh, how terrible. But Lord, we see that in our own hearts, the, the spiritual treason that we engage in when we worship things that are not you as more important than you. Father, help us to have a repentant heart. We would interrupt this slide and come back to you as the one who saves, the one who redeems, the one who forgives. And we're thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is freely given to all who come on Him in faith and believe in His name. Lord, help us to come to our senses, to see our circumstances, to look around us and say, what am I doing here? This isn't where I belong. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be over there with my Savior. Help us to come to You humbly, recognizing that You have forgiven us, you come with open arms, ready to embrace us, the stinking sinners that we are. No matter where we've been, you, you embrace us, and you love us, and you're, we're so thankful for that. Lord, bless this, uh, this day. Help us to come to you with the heart that is sensitive.